Good afternoon. My name is Valerie Davis. I'm one of the third years here at UT Family and Community Medicine. And I have the privilege and honor again to meet with Dr. Obai. So kind. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to talk to us um, just about a topic that's actually been pretty a big thing on the news for a yeah, while. Um, on many different levels, it's pretty much affected everyone from all ages, chronic pain. Yes. Alrighty. Yes. So I was kind of just overall doing a couple of things like definitions just to see what chronic pain is because sure. we hear about it and we don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So chronic pain by definition is any pain that lasts more than six months, and correct me if I'm wrong, sure. um, it affects your thoughts, your emotions, your attention, sleep, memory, and it can even go as bad as affecting your social interactions. Sure, absolutely. Is there anything I'm kind of missing? That, you nailed it. Uh, some definitions might use a three-month cutoff, okay. but I think common, it's more common to use the six-month cutoff, okay. so especially with like ICD-10. Okay. And things like that. So, do you yes. think they would do the three months if maybe you have a patient like high risk or something like that, or is it just literature? Just literally literature. Have different I... different things float different boats, you know. Oh, okay, yes. nice. Yes. So I was because a lot of this stuff we're learning as we go mm -hmm. in residency and with the patients that we see. So I kind of just started looking a little bit about the history. Okay. Uh, see, I'm trying to do my homework. Are you? Trying yes. to do, trying to do my homework. Yes, you are. Um, just don't quiz me. So <laughs> just a little brief history that I kind of picked up just by looking. Okay. Uh, the CDC was great in giving a lot of information. So it Good. seems like the big opioid craze when everybody was starting to get opioids was pretty much around the late 90s mm -hmm. where they were considering pains that really weren't allergic uh, allergic related to cancers so sure. your arthritis your back pains pretty much a lot of the common things that you see today mm -hmm. and then over time just a little bit just slowly started increasing more and more and more and then the number of prescriptions increased, the duration yeah. of the prescriptions increased, mm -hmm. and if I'm not mistaken, it peaked around 2015? Yes, yes, around that's when we've really started hearing a lot more about mm -hmm. it, especially in the media with yeah. uh, people that gateway into heroin use and overdose, and so people have seen the not-so-pretty sides of I know. some of that. I know. We yeah. lost Prince and we lost Michael Jackson. Yeah, yes, yes. I know. Bobby Brown's still alive, but that's another podcast. <laughs> it's another podcast. So um, just kind of going into, so then just looking into that, okay. then you were like, okay, well, how did we get from point A to practically point almost M or N or T? And they had different factors mm -hmm. that they were categorizing. So it seemed like smaller towns, smaller cities right. mm -hmm. where they don't seem to have very many options. It's just right. like, take this, go home. Go home. Especially rural areas. Yes. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then your larger towns, which was kind of surprising because right. you would think they would have more access, but I don't know if that means more between like classes. Right, right. So, right. Because you think about even here in San Antonio, we're the seventh largest city in the U.S., and we don't have a comprehensive pain center um, in the entire city. Wow. Um, you know, where they have pain specialists, PT on site, mm -hmm. uh, psychology on site, where they're working in this nice interdisciplinary pain mm -hmm. management approach. We don't have one of those centers here. So 
yes, you are, what you have found is accurate. And from what you've heard and just with your colleagues, I know there's a lot of pain centers here. There, yes. Or pain clinics. There are, yes. We have, <laughs> we have many of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got a lot of something. So we got a lot of those, yes. got a lot of something. Yes. But it's still not multidisciplinary. It's, it's just not. It's, you know, pain specialists doing... Um, different treatments, injections, um, nerve blocks, surgery. Uh, so it's very uh, kind of the biomedical focus. Gotcha. And gotcha, uh, gotcha. psychosocial part is okay. left out. Mm-hmm. Sad, but it yes. makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that was interesting is that you have dentists and primary care physicians yes. that do a lot of the prescribing of they the do. opioids. They do. And I, I don't know, I was kind of surprised by the dentist part. Right. Which, I mean, there's, I can imagine only certain procedures that would probably warrant something mm-hmm. like that, but just taking out a tooth or doing a filling, I, I guess I can Right. And technically, yes, you're right. If you're just having one tooth taken out or something, they really sh- should not be prescribing that. And now if you're having... You know, all of your teeth pulled out, the dentures put in. That's a different mm-hmm. story. But, but even then, you yeah. may have some dentists prescribing for you know a couple of teeth being pulled. You know, things like that. Jesus. So, and then more risk factor wise, and if there's any others that you think of, sure. please just jump in. Yes. A lot of your uninsured and mm-hmm. unemployed patients. So I'm assuming that would be more of the factors that would compound in the big cities where you don't have proper access sure, to care. Sure. Sure and being pretty proactive. Mm-hmm. And and I think this is the big one, patients with the chronic conditions. Right. So like we said, the arthritis, uh, disabilities, histories of traumas. Right. Um, and diabetes from the standpoint of neuropathy, and then that's yes. a whole other conversation because the treatment is different. Very different. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I don't know if you've seen it with the BHC team where there kind of has to be that re-education we do, yeah. We, we see that from time to time, um, because yeah, you have this extra layer of this the type the type pain of is diabetes. Pain. Yeah, you have the, the pain, pain part, but then you have the diabetes part, which really makes it this multifaceted, complex issue. Uh, but yes, we do see that from yes. time to time. Yes, mm-hmm. and so then comes to our other segment. Why we cannot look the other way anymore. Come on. <laughs> we, can't. we cannot. We nice. Cannot. Why we can't. Yes. Um, few things. Number one, drug overdoses actually continue to be on the rise yes. in the U.S. Right. And it was kind of surprising because when you look at it, it seems like the Northeast, mm-hmm. they have a huge problem up there. Um, I know when we were interviewing certain residents Mm -hmm. um, and they told us about just their clinical experience in different places and there was one applicant that actually did one of her rotations in those clinics and she was like every day. Wow. Every day. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely. um, Let's see. uh, Oh, statistics from 1999 Mm -hmm. to 2017. Mm -hmm. We've actually had more than 700,000 people die from drug overdoses. That's a huge number. That's a huge number. And it, it's getting to the point where it may have already surpassed um, accidental deaths being uh, like through motor vehicle accidents. Uh, I believe drug overdose uh-huh. through opioids is now surpassing that or in the process or it's 
it's in that direction. It's going in that direction right now. I think just the fact that it's in the running. Yeah, it's in the running. That's a <laughs> good way to describe it. Yes. It's just a close second. It's a close um, second. It's, yeah, it's in the running. Not a good close second. No. Not a good close not second. Not the type that you would want. No. And no. just like you were saying, that 68% uh, of more than the 70,000 was uh, attributed to drug overdose-related deaths in 2017. Mm -hmm. At least one opioid was involved. Got it. One okay. opioid. At least one. Mm -hmm. Mm. And let's see what else were they saying. And on average, 130 Americans die every day from an opioid drug overdose. It's, it's um, wild. Yeah. And talking about that, especially with the other statistic, when they were talk saying that at least one opioid was involved in drug overdoses, is how common? Like before the 90s, opioid was like that bucket of gold at the end of the rainbow. Sure. You're like, ooh, I get an opioid. Now it's like Tylenol. Right. It's, and you know, you look at Medrex and. You see it, you see it there. Yeah. And in combination with other depressing medications. Right, right. So. It's just a lethal mix with like barbiturates or with benzodiazepines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think we've almost, and because I know you've worked with a lot of physicians as well, uh, side by side. Do you think from our end that we've also kind of become numb from, because as a resident, you're, you're freaked out about everything. You're like, oh my God, Tylenol, <laughs> the warning says I can't give more than 650 milligrams, I don't right. feel comfortable. But after a while, yeah. you know, do you think that we're just, okay, you can, you can have pregabalin and T4 and sure. tizanidine. Right, <laughs> and then you exactly. put all of that together Just and mix it all together. Yeah. Do you do you think that that's that we're kind of not so sensitive anymore to the combinations or yes. working on it? Yes. Where do you see us? I would say so. Um, so there's this. There are these two schools of thought. If you think about evidence-based <laughs> practice versus empirically supported <laughs> treatments in terms of how you go about. Mm -hmm. um, treating a condition and so you have your well this is how I treat chronic low back pain I do this this and this and then versus acute pain and so forth and so what can happen especially the number of years someone has been outside of their training program uh, providers start to rely on anecdotal mm -hmm. uh, evidence uh, which is not useful uh, <laughs> or, or helpful, um, but you know I hear it. I've heard it in multiple clinics where I, that mm -hmm. I've worked in. It's like, well, I've had patients similar to this, this, or their situation's different, so I'm going to give this, this, and this. Or, mm -hmm. well, I really know that person, so it's okay if I, you know, do something that's really not evidence informed mm -hmm. or evidence based or empirically supported, mm -hmm. um, because I I've known them for a long time, mm -hmm. and so I see a lot of that happening where people start to get away from. What we know works based on what they feel, start to feel comfortable in. People start to get into their groove, and unfortunately, the groove is not always evidence. Now, I don't know if this is evidence based, but I, I, I understand a lot when you were talking about, well, I've known this person because in a small town, where right. you're the only doctor, and you're like, oh, I've seen this person at the grocery store, and oh, they should be mm -hmm. good. I, you can see where that can be right. kind of a factor. That's right. the down-home kind of mentality, so sure. I grew up in a small town. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> the main thing now is where would we consider beginning? Mm. That, that's our next topic. You're right, right. Just where would we 
even start? I think low-hanging fruit, just from what I've seen, and from some of the newer literature on trying to do practice change for how you treat and deal with and manage chronic pain in primary care is the education mm-hmm. of, of what the pain is, not just for the patients. I think they definitely need to know what, mm-hmm. like, what is chronic pain um, versus acute pain. Mm-hmm. But uh, the providers... Man, it's like you read the script already. I know. The providers need that just because mm-hmm. a lot of med school curricula, curricula are not, it's not automatic where mm-hmm. people get training on pain medicine and just the, just all the aspects of managing, just pain in general, pain medicine is such a complex topic. And so mm-hmm. people, people really need um, just concrete training in that. And, Maybe it's sprinkled in an elective here or two in med school and then in, mm-hmm. in residency, depending on where you do your residency, you may or may not mm-hmm. get a whole lot of exposure to mm-hmm. it. Um, so I think education on both sides. Perfect. Uh, we need to, that's a, a nice place for us to start. Right, right. Yeah. And it's kind of, and that's the base, sure. I, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, when do you think that it's something that we, you should kind of start opening the door to conversation in that sense with your patient? Just like how you say, like, hey, uh, we have this kind of pain. Sure. This kind of pain is caused by this. Mm-hmm. You know, so even though in the past, yeah, right, <laughs> the treatment regimens have been this, over time it will not be helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, do you... Personally, if I know that a patient has so many conditions right. that you know aren't going to get better, mm, okay, that it's going to be, it's going to be a work in progress. It's going to be dynamic. It's going to change periodically. Um, I kind of start the conversation from early, only because if you have a population where if it's underserved, mm-hmm. um, you kind of kill two birds with one stone with educating the patient. Sure, uh, which is huge. Right. And then from there, you're already having that conversation. So it doesn't get awkward and it doesn't be like, why don't you want to give me this anymore? Right. You're my doctor kind of thing. Sure. What's your stance? I definitely agree. Earlier the better. I think when it's in the acute pain phase, start having the conversation about acute pain versus, you know, persistent pain, (laughs) kind of that that bridge before it gets to chronic pain Mm -hmm. start to talk to them about what the differences are why you treat the different pain stages much differently Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so I think the earlier the better there's research that um, encourages that to start sooner than later Um, there's actually been better pain outcomes uh, when you start educating about chronic pain say someone's had chronic pain for they're right underneath that cutoff, maybe for four, or excuse me, acute pain for four or five months. Mm, okay. And it's looking like, this might turn into <laughs> chronic pain. Uh-huh. When, when the providers have that conversation, right before it transitions to chronic pain, those patients have better pain outcomes in terms of lower rates of misuse if they do, are still on opioids, mm-hmm. um, higher rates of treatment adherence going to PT, actually sticking with the stretching and the exercises versus stopping after PT is over. <laughs> uh, um, that could happen. That can ha- who would have thought? That does oh, kind of happen. Who thought? Who thought? Uh, yes. So, yes. Earlier the better. Okay. Absolutely. And, yes. and I know you've actually had the opportunity to deal with different patient populations in different states. Yeah. Yes. How has yes. the reception of that been? Just geographically, it's been 
It's, not, it's been the same <laughs> across the board. Oh, nice. um, pain is one of those things where it's some, no matter where you treat it, it's just essentially very very similar stories get okay. told in terms. Uh, and, and me being on the behavioral health side, yeah. I unfortunately see patients, I think, much too late. Um, typically, patients have been through the ringer before they get connected to me. They've right. gone through the pain specialists. They've had multiple surgeries, multiple injections, multiple nerve blocks, multiple, all these things. Mm-hmm. Been to PT 20 times, and you know they've had pain for 20 plus years. So when they come to someone like me, they're incredibly frustrated, they're tired, and they feel disempowered because now they, they're thinking, oh great, they think my pain isn't real because they're coming, they're sending me to you as, you know, a psychologist. What, what, what is going on? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we do patients a disservice mm-hmm. by introducing at least the behavioral health aspects of managing chronic pain a bit too late. Right. Um, but the biggest thing I've seen across the board, state to state, is that when I work with patients who have had pain for 20 plus years, it's been consistent where they always bring up, oh, why, can I, why couldn't I have seen somebody like you, like, 15 years 15 ago. 15 years ago. A long time, you know, much, this would have been so much helpful in terms of getting my functioning back or knowing that my life isn't over because I have chronic pain. Right. Uh, and so that's probably the most consistent story I've heard in all the different states where I've worked with patients with chronic pain is that they say, I wish I would have seen someone like you sooner. And one of the really cool things, whenever I was doing my rotation in behavioral and you gave us all of those resources, oh, sure. it was really neat to read about how your brain almost gets rewired yes. in the presence of chronic pain. It does. And when you explain that to a patient, then it takes kind of the thought away of like, why are you bringing them? There's nothing wrong with me. You know, because right. they'll think, I'm not crazy. Why, right. why do I need a psychologist? And, mm-hmm. and to, for them to know that there's so much more that goes on beyond behind the scenes apart from the pain that they're feeling. Right. Um, I think that's been pretty huge, too. So I really have to tell you thank you for that. Of course. um, We try. We try. Thank you. Thank you. But um, the other thing, uh, just to touch base on a few things with the medications as well, Mm -hmm. is an article that you sent me before we actually decided to kind of plan for this podcast is, out of all the opioids that are produced in the world, the United States consumes... (laughs) A little bit, just a sprinkle of, what is it, 98%? Yes. 99-ish percent? About 99, 98.5. Rounding rounding around, which was a little scary to think about. Right. But if you think a country that has the resources, has the funding, then you can kind of see where that's a go-to as opposed to other countries where they're like, we're going to have to think of something else. Right, right. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty wild. Which Um, I think is what uh, the article did kind of touch base on a little bit because they were like, okay, well, let's think about other things because this isn't going to be the only option. Besides, yeah. So that was nice to know. Mm -hmm. Not the 98% part, but the fact that people are thinking in that direction. Mm -hmm. And we don't pay attention to a lot of the common drugs, you know. Right. We think, okay, well, chronic pain, we're just going to take Tylenol then since I'm not going to, but actually liver toxicity is actually on the rise. Exactly. Because of Tylenol, because Mm -hmm. patients don't know. You see it more in your geriatric population. And then when you have such a population with a lot of 
kidney function disorders or kidney disorders, right. the NSAIDs really aren't that good. It's not the best. Exactly. Either. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the CDC is actually starting, well, they didn't start it, but they've actually put task force together to do they different have. measures. To yes. Try this instead. Consider other measures. Uh, risk scores. Right. To right. see right. Uh, risk of addiction. Mm-hmm. Of not only opioids, but even like your benzos. Absolutely. Right. Um, which is good. Absolutely. And let's see, regarding, so we, I know we talked about when to bring in the conversation. Sure, sure. Techniques. What uh, techniques yeah, yes. would you think would be good? Sure. So I think the biggest, bef- just to back up just a step before mm-hmm. getting into techniques. Yes. One of, the, one of the ways that we, not just we being us here, mm-hmm. but just pain practitioners mm-hmm. um, encourage uh, how to conceptualize patients who have chronic pain is using a biopsychosocial approach, trying to get away from the biomedical-focused approaches because pain is so complex. And as you had mentioned, there's so many other factors besides just, uh, yes, physical inactivity, deconditioning definitely impacts pain, mm-hmm. but social functioning, family functioning, psychological functioning, that definitely impacts pain too. And so when you think about it from that standpoint, um, it's encouraging patients to do more than one thing uh, to help manage their pain. So in terms of techniques to help encouraging more than one thing, Mm -hmm. um, kind of the go-to, I would say, is motivational interviewing. Uh, Just because chronic pain is something that patients are dealing with for the rest of their lives. And so it can, at times, get daunting. To think about, I have to stretch every day, mm-hmm. multiple times a day. Yeah. Uh, I have to exercise daily. Would be great. Um, I have to, you know, it'd be great if they could do that. Um, I have to, you know, for some patients, it could involve taking a medication. Mm-hmm. Um, it could involve practicing behavioral strategies. So just that motivation piece is so key to keep patients uh, connected to to doing what works best for them. So I think motivational interviewing is a fantastic technique. Um, to have in someone's tool belt to help motivate patients to stay involved with all of these different aspects of pain management. Okay. Um, so that's one. Mm-hmm. Um, another area is um, c- uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so we call it CBT for pain. So there is a cognitive behavioral treatment approach that focuses on patients who have uh, different chronic pain conditions such as fibromyalgia, uh, chronic low back pain, um, complex regional pain syndrome, these pain conditions that just they have just pain all over, um, essentially. And really, really targets uh, negative thinking styles. Okay. Um, there was a, some research that came out about a year or two ago that looked at something called catastrophizing. It's a, it's a, it's a, a thinking pattern where people assume the worst about okay. their situation. So for patients with chronic pain, it's this is the worst pain ever. It's never going to get better. My p- provider's never going to help me. I'm never going to get my life back. It's these really extreme ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. And they find that patients who catastrophize more often, mm-hmm. they tend to have worse pain outcomes. Um, and so it was CBTP is what we call it. And we help patients by targeting those cognitive distortions or what we call it, the negative thinking patterns, mm-hmm. um, to help kind of restructure how they think um, from kind of the irrational side of things to a bit more rational. And so I always tell patients it's, it's different than, say, positive thinking. Uh, it's not, that's not what we're asking you to do. That, that's not super effective. Uh, but <laughs> moving from, into that. yeah, just, just think harder about happy things. No. 
Uh, <laughs> joking aside, just moving from the irrational mm-hmm. black and white, nothing's ever going to help me to, well, yeah, there probably is still something out there that I haven't tried before. Let me give this a try. So it's just shifting them, mm-hmm. making these small shifts over. And so uh, it's an incredibly effective technique. There's been lots of research out there where um, the outcomes when you compare it to surgery for chronic low back pain, mm-hmm. CBTP has better outcomes, pain outcomes, that compared to patients who have back surgery. It's, wow. it's wild. Um, yeah, back surgery is like a bajillion times more expensive uh, than a doing bit, a, just a, you bit, know, yeah. a couple of months of CBT uh, for chronic pain. But there's been a lot of research to show that the pain outcomes are, are better. And it would make sense because it would be really nice to have that other option. For example, patients who aren't good surgical candidates, like right. your geriatric patients. Sure, sure. Um, actually, today I I met the sweetest little eighty-year-old guy, mm-hmm. and he was actually a professional soccer player. Oh wow! In Mexico, oh, and wow. he's gotten everything broken twice, done a couple <laughs> of things three times, and he showed me all of them. Yes, all yes. of them today. Yes. But he, at some point in time, had hip surgery, but it was a long time ago, and you know, surgical techniques have right. changed. Right. So, but he has chronic hip pain. Mm, okay. And then they're like, so what are my options? And many surgeons, you're 80. Right. <laughs> so the discussion isn't going to go very long. Right, exactly. So that would be something that would be wonderful for patients who are getting older. Absolutely. Who would like to keep their function. Right. But, you know. Pain less rating kind right, of way. Right, exactly. So, exactly. That's good. Yeah, um, that's fantastic. And for those doctors, because not everyone is blessed to be in an institution where you have all of these services sure, side by side. Right. And we always like to say it, at least with every podcast, because you never know who's listening. Sure. You never know where you're going to end up. You might be in a rural place or just a place that doesn't have all of these services. Resource-wise, for a physician that would be interested in trying or just to have another option? What would you recommend for that? Sure. So there is a magazine that's called The Pain Practitioner. Okay. Um, it's actually geared toward um, just clinic, like practicing clinicians, PCPs, okay. uh, where they write articles that are focused on uh, how do you take these huge randomized control trial, pain trials, and that when you don't have a PT, you don't have a physical therapist, you don't have a psychologist, you yes. don't have these folks in your clinic, how do you do this? Yes. So they kind of break those pieces down to make it um, into smaller pieces that okay. practitioners can use in their daily practice. And so that's a great um, journal, or not, excuse me, an, um, a magazine okay. um, that's super user-friendly. Um, a lot of the content is free. If you want, of course, the magazines, you can pay the prescription, but a lot of it's free on their website. So that's nice. one, um, one resource. Um, another one is something, especially for folks in rural settings, mm-hmm. um, so there's something called Project ECHO. Okay. And um, the ECHO model is all over the U.S., and it's essentially these, there are these hubs across the country, typically at academic institutions, mm-hmm. that have a, each, each hub has a different focus. Um, where they provide telehealth services or telehealth coaching for community-based practitioners on various topics. And a lot of the time, the ECHOs provide these um, telehealth teaching services, consulting services, Mm -hmm. uh, for free at times. 
Uh, and so that could be something else for private providers to look at. Just Google Project Echo, okay. um, see which one is located. We, we have an Echo here at UT Health. Uh, in San Antonio really? here um, that um, they're kind of spread out all over the state at least in Texas outside yeah. of Texas they're all over uh, and people can search for one and see um, there I know there are some that have a chronic pain focus okay. so that could Perfect. be something else where people say I don't have the time to go to CME and be out of clinic for four days but right, right. if I could log in during my lunch hour and talk to someone and get some coaching about a complex patient yeah. Because if you think it. about it, if you're in a small town and you mm -hmm. start with one person and another person, I mean, eventually, eventually, you know, yes. you'll actually start a new way of thinking, right. which will be better for the town in general. Absolutely. So, so that's kind of nice. Yeah. Patients talk, you know. I know. They, they share things with the each other. Word yeah. travels so fast. It does. It's <laughs> not just when you win the lotto. No. So have you noticed um, or just have you had any experiences of resistance regarding kind of starting this you know you have your patient that brand new to the clinic they've been on X medication for 20 something number of years for pain and I'm pretty sure at some point in time whenever they were naive to the medication they felt some relief and yeah. they just want to come in and just pick up where they left off right have you seen a lot of that are you not seeing a lot of that Yes, for sure. Definitely have seen that. Um, especially especially how it was the kind of the sales, the marketing that took place by the PCP in terms of letting the patient know <laughs> right, right. kind of what, what this is and how this will help them. Right. Uh, one of the biggest misconceptions from patients is that they think we're there to take their meds away. Um, that often happens the first visit. They're nervous. They're quite, you know, agitated with us when you know we walk just in just really clutching you, the clutching their bag <laughs> so I always start the visit even when I'm introducing myself saying hi I'm Dr. Robot and I'm not here to take your meds uh, usually I'll start something you know along those lines where they kind of look at me or some of them will laugh or some <laughs> will say tell me tell me more uh, and so and I'll explain and I'll start to lead into mm -hmm. the multimodal approach for chronic pain I'll lead into chronic pain education about pain is such a complex entity that we can't treat it just with one thing and so once I start to explain that it is that we're just in addition to mm -hmm. rather than now we're the only thing because I said I don't want you to just see us mm -hmm. either I right. want you to go to PT I want you to stretch I want you to do all the go to water aerobics whatever it may be mm -hmm. so uh, usually that will then kind of calm the the bag go the, the, the back put go, it down you know. just because you don't say look over there over there, I'll take it later. Uh, but yeah, so there's some. Uh, that's probably the biggest thing that that comes up is patients, um, because they've had a they have the conversation with their PCP about. Uh, usually, it's we're here to reduce meds. Patients hear that you're taking my meds, so that, yes. that so that yes. that's the first thing that happens, and they come to us upset from the PCP visit, and mm -hmm. so we try to recalibrate and explain that this is where they're just reducing they're not taking away because right. they're reducing because they're adding us so it's kind of this nice balance here but and it's also yeah. good to know because like now we're in third year but sometimes when you walk in into a room as an intern and you have a brand new patient visit you think okay we're going to talk about your colonoscopy and they're like mm -hmm. i need this 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 and this because i've been on it for 20 years and then as an intern you're like i'll be right back right and then you run out the room Professionally, of course. Of course. And professionally, professionally. and you're just like, where do you begin? 
you know. So it's kind of nice that if you know the problem, kind of know how to set the stage, even though you may run out of the room anyway professionally, you've at least set some sort of stage that when they bring in behavioral health, you know, it's kind of like a warm handoff and right. and you learn experiences in Absolutely. that sense. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yes. so I, I always just wanted to make sure to ask because I, I think about my two years back. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Um, and I think we talked about the recommendations and experiences. Any any closing points that you think that take home main things that hmm. we always need to just keep in the back of our minds. We don't have to know everything, but sure. Just... I think the biggest thing, two things mm-hmm. that go hand in hand. One is don't underestimate the power of education okay. and re-education for your patients. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes people think, well, I already told them once, and mm-hmm. it's like, well. They were hungry that day, and they were <laughs> late, and so they were in a rush. They didn't hear. So right. repeating is totally fine. Mm-hmm. If you need to repeat every every time they come about. Now remember, you have chronic pain, not acute pain. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the idea of acceptance of chronic pain. Uh, that can be a huge pill to swallow for many patients uh, because of the stigma attached to chronic pain. Right. Um, and, uh, it can be just, it, it is life changing and it's definitely life changing for patients. And so there are many times when we first tell them they have chronic pain, um, they didn't hear it. They don't want to hear it. They, they're just, <laughs> this is too much. I, I don't have chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And so it's just being gentle, being empathic with that and just exploring it again at each visit, just because the acceptance piece for pain can take a long time. Right. For patients, some patients right. it clicks. Some patients that it can be years before they really like it sets in that oh this pain isn't going away, okay. versus searching for the next quick fix <laughs> to get rid of it. You know. Gotcha, gotcha. So. Alrighty, well yeah. thank you so much for taking the time to sure. educate us on this, this. Great. and hopefully we can do another one yes, soon, and yes. we'll make sure Fearless Leader is with us so he can, he can bring <laughs> yes. that South American flair exactly. to the podcast. Exactly. And uh, so thank you all for joining and listening, and hopefully we'll have another podcast soon. Great, thanks. All righty, you have a great one.